of stuff needed doing. And he asked the people prayerfully to consider how much they might put on the plate as it went round. And so um, it went round, and he said that whoever gave the most would be allowed to pick three hymns. Oh, you know it, don't you? Yeah, well, just, just wait, Audrey. Okay. Oh, for goodness sake, I don't know. Right, after the offering, the plates were passed. Uh, passed the glance down and noticed that there was a thousand-pound note. Do they exist? How do you know? <laughs> right, you can give more. <laughs> right, well, anyway, so you say a thousand-pound note, and it was in the offering plate, and so he immediately asked who had given this note. And there sat Rosie at the back of the church. Been in the church for many years, a single lady. Uh, she shyly raised her hand and, and the pastor asked her to come forward. Yes, there's Rosie there in the back. <laughs> Tim. <laughs> Slowly she made her way forward and the pastor said, that's fantastic, what a generous gift you can pick out three hymns. And her eyes brightened as she looked across the congregation, pointed to the three most handsome men in the congregation and said, I'll have him, him, and him. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> Buildings. Now, you may think that after we've had all of this palaver about raising money for painting and we've done loads of work on the building at St. Luke's and uh, uh, as the organ which... Um, it's still in pieces in a place in Fakenham at the moment, and we're hoping that it might be back by Christmas, but we're beginning to wonder and all of that. You know, buildings, talking about church buildings is, is one of the problems, isn't it, that, that, uh, of, of the church. We're so hamstrung by our buildings that sometimes we can't do anything else. I heard an amazing statistic at the conference I was at last weekend. I was at a conference called Deaneries Are Us. And people wonder why the Church of England's in the state it's in. <laughs> Deaneries are us. But actually, it was a really good conference, but a gopping title. Anyway, there we are, a very good conference. And one of the things was said, one million Roman Catholics worship in, in I think it was in England, in 10,000 churches on the average Sunday. One million Anglicans, on, on average worship in 64,000 churches every Sunday. Buildings are a problem to us. It's why in the countryside in particular we're so thinly spread. So why have I chosen Nehemiah then? Uh, because I have. Why have I chosen something that is all about building? Um, those of you who know the story of Nehemiah will know that it's to do with the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. Well, I have picked Nehemiah. There he is. Um, well, that's not actually him. It's about 3,000 years ago. <laughs> no one knows what he looks like. And that's his statue on a, in some cathedral or other. And you can see he's holding a brick. There he is. Uh, or a, a stone, because that's his symbol. And he's known as the person who rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. And I'll explain a little bit of that, that in the moment. Okay. Why have I chosen that? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I believe that in Nehemiah we have a pattern for leadership and we have a pattern for the building of the church. And by the building of the church, I mean extending the kingdom of God. And I think as you look through Nehemiah, you can often see, in a sense, where in the place in Nehemiah a particular church is up to in its development. 
Lots and lots of lessons. Now, we won't go through every single chapter of Nehemiah, but to begin with, we will. We'll look at it chapter by chapter as we see uh, this exciting development and relate it to our church and to our lives. I was saying this morning, um, I heard Bishop James, uh, Bishop of Lynn, uh, about to go, actually, but he was inducting a friend of mine over at King's Lynn earlier this week, and he reminded us that in the ordinal, which is the service, where, uh, the, the, the service where priests and deacons are made, in those services, there is this phrase that speaks about how priests should be formed by Scripture. And, of course, we believe in a priesthood of all believers. Uh, and, and that little phrase, being formed by Scripture, I think is an important one. Because that should be the experience of all of us. And as I said this morning, you're going to hear a lot about this over the next year. (laughs) Uh, As I said this morning, I am appalled by the number of Christians who do not open their Bible from Sunday to Sunday. And perhaps they don't even open it on a Sunday. How? How are we going to become more like Christ? How are we going to deepen in our discipleship? if we don't allow ourselves to be formed by Scripture, because that is the Word of God. And if we don't do that, how do we expect our lives to improve in God? How do we expect that fantastic promise of Paul uh, in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, that speaks of us being changed from one degree of glory to another? It takes effort, just like the building of this wall took effort, being formed by Scripture. And this Scripture in Nehemiah has a lot to tell us. Okay, so there we are. Where are we in the history of um, Israel? We're obviously in the Old Testament. We're way back. Those of you who know anything about the Old Testament, um, uh, you know, Abraham has has formed the the people of Israel. They're they're taken, Joseph, you know, and they go off to Egypt. Then they come back. Uh, Moses leads them into the Promised Land. And then they, because of poor leadership, And poor spiritual leadership, again and again, the country is in trouble. And eventually, it is overrun by the Babylonian Empire, and the people are taken off into exile. Some are left behind in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but mostly they're all taken off into exile. The temple is totally destroyed, raised to the ground, and the walls of Jerusalem um, are pulled down. So the place has been left in ruins. And the exile goes on for a number of years. And we are now towards the end of the exile, the time when God's people were um, away from Jerusalem and away from the temple. And now comes the point at which they are beginning to return. Ezra, that's the book before Nehemiah in the Bible. Oh, sorry, I should have told you who Nehemiah is. Now, Nehemiah is a a Jew in exile, and he is actually cupbearer to the king. King Artaxerxes. (laughs) Nice little name that just, you know, trips off of the lip. King Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Um, They are in slavery. He won't be getting paid for this, but at least he gets to drink a bit of wine here and there, and it's quite a comfortable job, unless, of course, somebody decides they're going to poison the king. (laughs) Uh, Then it becomes a fairly horizontal sort of job. (laughs) But but anyway, he, he is... 
obviously done quite well because, you know, you, the king would select somebody who he liked and somebody capable to do that job. Um, so, so he's in a comfortable, uh, comfortable place. Now, Ezra, as I said, the, the book before Nehemiah, as far as we understand, and there is some discussion about this, but as far as we understand, Ezra has already gone back to Jerusalem. Ezra is a priest, and he has taken people to go back, and his passion is to rebuild the temple. And that's what he does. He wants to reinstitute the, uh, the temple sacrifices, and he asks the king if he can take back with him some of the precious things that have been looted from the temple. Um, because for, for the Jews at this time, it was like, you know, unless the temple is up and running, we, we hardly have God with us, because God is in the temple. And if the temple is destroyed, we are in disgrace as a nation because God isn't with us. That sort of feeling. A bit like in the old churches, you know, where you know, you've got the altar up that end and the priest used to stand this way, yeah, facing the altar. Have you seen that style of worship? Still happens in some places. And it's odd. I've done it a couple of times in, when I've been visiting churches. And I don't like it. I mean, I was a teacher, and, and you know, never turn your back on the class, for goodness sake. <laughs> to, you know, even when you're writing on the blackboard, you know, you've got wing mirrors. And you, <laughs> you never know what might happen. But, but as well as it feeling very awkward from that, I mean, it does, you, you know. <laughs> you could be there saying the Eucharistic prayer, and the congregation, if they all agree, they could all creep out and leave. <laughs> There's a challenge for some of you if you ever go to a church like that. <laughs> But also, what it demonstrates is that you're facing that way because presumably that's where you think God is. <laughs> uh, which is why, actually, I don't like it as a, a, a way to stand in church because it seems to be sending out the wrong message to me. All right, so, so he had got the temple up and running, but of course, the whole of the city was still open to invasion because the walls hadn't been rebuilt and it was a dangerous situation. And I just thought, isn't that interesting? Uh, I mean, I don't want to sort of diss Ezra, and I'm sure he had a call to do that, but it sort of opens up this whole business of the church being so inward-looking that it can often ignore the dangers of the society around and the dangers actually to its existence and it can also fail to look out to the community in which it is set. I mean, there, there were warring tribes surrounding Jerusalem. There were people trying to take bits of land from each other in the Middle East. Doesn't happen today, does it? <laughs> nothing changes, nothing changes. And it's sort of this business about how it's easy for us to put the church first and actually the community in, we're, in which we're set Second, and that is so, so wrong. Of course it is important to have our worship spaces so that they glorify God. But you see, churches can be so intent upon their own problems and their own little power struggles and their own wanting to be a certain way that they ignore everybody else. They ignore other churches. They ignore the community in which they're set. You know, I'm a bit exhausted having been given this job of rural dean because it's piled on a load of work that I wasn't expecting. But part of it is really exciting. I, I was able to talk about a vision for the deanery last Thursday, and, 
And to think, you know, that, that in our deanery there are over a thousand people on the joint electoral rolls and seeing as everyone carefully whittles down their electoral roll as much as they can to keep their parish share low, <laughs> the chances are it's more like 2,000 because I'm a realist, I understand these things. Um, you know, that's a lot of people. It's not as many as the prob probable 100,000 people that there are in the deanery, but nonetheless, it's enough to work with. And if we could work together more, let alone all the other churches, our brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't part of the Church of England, and if we could begin to work across boundaries, looking outwards, there's no telling what we could do in this town and the surrounding villages. But we don't. <laughs> but we're going to, I tell you, we're going to. <laughs> we're going to. Uh, in the bits that I have any control over, well, not control, but influence over. That's one thing I've discovered with Rural Dean. You have no power over anything. <laughs> But uh, never mind, that's probably a good thing. Power's not always a very good thing to have as a Christian. You know, keeping the main thing, the main thing, what we're actually about and what we are about is saying, we think we have a great God, don't we? We, we think we have a marvelous Savior, don't we? <laughs> we think it's fantastic to live our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit day by day, yes? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm getting a bit Pentecostal here. <laughs> well, then don't we want other people to share that? And isn't that the task? I heard at this conference, our dinner is our us, last weekend, one bishop was speaking to us, and he said, I'll tell you the story of the Bible in a minute. And I thought, oh, now we're really going to dumb down, aren't we? Typical Church of England. But actually, it was very useful. He was doing it so that we could keep the main thing the main thing. And he said, you know, God created, uh, God created the world and he created people so that they could show to each other who God was and how they could live in relationship with God. And yet they sinned and they, and they failed. And so God took a nation, Israel, to say, I will model this nation and you are to show the world who God is and who God can be in your lives. But that nation grabbed God to themselves and the prophets grabbed God to themselves and said, it's for us and not you. And so they failed. And so God sent his son who showed this time successfully by bringing in the kingdom or starting the bringing in of the kingdom, showed others who God is and who God can be to us. And then, when he was taken to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit and the church is created to show the nations who God is and who God can be to the people. And that's the Bible. That's the story of the Bible until the end of times at Revelation when everybody will know who God is and who God can be in their lives. And that will be to their joy or possibly to their horror if we have not done our job successfully. The Bible, in a minute, it's pretty good, eh? Because it keeps the main thing the main thing. The church is here to model Christ to the world and to say, get Christ. You can have Christ. You have the spark of God within you already, just as a human being. We know that from Genesis. But that spark needs to take over your lives so that you can have an assurance of sins forgiven and you can have an assurance of your place in heaven and you can have the assurance that you can walk day by day by day by day hand in hand with Jesus. But no, <laughs> they just wanted to get the temple sorted out. 
And the challenge is to us to keep our eyes fixed on the objective. Of course we have got to do things to make sure the church does run right so that we can do that job. And of course we do pastoral care so that we love one another as we sang about tonight and so that we can model Jesus to the world. And because we just need to do that. God dwells in community and so must we dwell in community with the Holy Spirit. But we must never forget what the main thing is. Okay, so the problem, I've already said it, here we go. Those, uh, what happened is Nehemiah is busy bearing his cup um, to the king and then a group of people come back from Ezra's crowd who have set up things in Jerusalem because things are going wrong and Nehemiah hears. These people say those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So not only was the wall destroyed in the exile in part, it's got worse. And any attempts to sort of defend against uh, enemy people outside is now futile because they can get in at almost any place they choose. This is a problem. What is Nehemiah's reaction? Thank you. (laughs) He opens his ears. (laughs) He listens to the problem. Now, you might say, well, come on, Ian, that's really obvious. (laughs) It's not obvious at all. People don't always listen to the problem. You know, the real problem of a situation. They bury their head in the sand, or they nod and say, oh, yeah, that must be very difficult, and then they get on with doing their really important things, whatever they happen to be. And for Nehemiah, if he listens, he knows he's got to do something about it, and it might just be easier not to hear. We need to listen. You know, there's a good statistic that came out um, last week, I think it was, or the week before, uh, something like 70% of people in this country say they're Christians. I I don't know (laughs) which survey this was. I mean, but that 70% say in some shape or form they call themselves Christian. Now, we know that only a percentage of those are perhaps committed Christians, But if they call themselves Christian, then that spark in their lives got just a little bit bigger. (laughs) And that's an opportunity. Are you praying that you'll meet some of those 70% of people and talk to them? You know, I had a conversation last week and somebody actually said, you know, do you find then that God has, it was over over the death of my father. And and she said, do you find that that God has helped you in that situation? What, What a fantastic opportunity. So, you know, I listened. I could have thought, I've really busy, you know, I've got to to write the magazine for the article, no, the article for the magazine, (laughs) and tell what sort of week I've had, can't you? We have to listen. Now, now, 70%, yes, that's fantastic, but do the same survey with 18 to 30-year-olds, and it plummets down to about 20%. People come back to church. We had Back to Church Sunday. We had a handful of people coming back to church. Fantastic. I can almost guarantee you that all of those people are people who have had contact with church at some point, probably at Sunday school in their youth. 
Everybody, it seems, most people that come back to church, not all, most people that come new to church have had some contact in the past. That's why doing something like a holiday club is so absolutely vital, because that might be the only time when those children hear that story of redemption. And they may hear it four or five times at four or five holiday clubs, and then they go off, but they've heard it, and they may come back when they're older, because it's there, the seed has been sown. But we need to listen to these things, you know, with big ears. <laughs> we need to really listen, and he listened, he was preferred to listen. And, and in order to listen to, the, to what's going on around us in the wider world, I mean, I hope you read the papers. I hope you watch the news. I hope you keep up to date with what's going on. I hope you make friends who are not church people as well as your church friends. Because how else are we going to hear what's going on? And how else are we going to discover those people where the little flicker of God within them is just beginning to get a bit bigger and they are wanting to ask questions and say to us, can you tell me anything about this God that seems to mean, who seems to mean so much to you? So he hears. You know, this is so important. It's so important that Jesus spoke about it, didn't he? He said, having ears, they do not hear. Lord, make us hearing people. Then what's his reaction? Well, he can see the bigger picture. Now, Ezra, with... You know, it's a fantastic job that he's done, but he hasn't been able to see the wider picture. All he's seen is his little bit of the picture. Now, this is really, really critical. Many people, many Christians, only see the little bit of the world that is theirs. That's why you get so many arguments in churches. It's one of the reasons. Other than sin, <laughs> he said, obviously. But, you know, it, it's... It, it's because people see their little area and then something happens to upset their little area. You now, somebody else's little area impinges upon theirs. And none of them, or neither of them, are actually seeing the wider picture, keeping the main thing the main thing. It seems to me that Nehemiah was able to see the wider picture. Now, of course, it's a leader's job to see the wider picture, and it's those who are in leadership, it's their job to see the wider picture. Pray for your PCC, it's their job to see the wider picture. Pray for, uh, well, pray for me, pray for the, the ordained staff, uh, the licensed staff, those whose job is to lead. But also pray for those who listen in deeper as we try to hear the voice of God. Uh, pray for those with that prophetic gifting. Because all of this helps us to see the wider picture. And I encourage all Christian people to look beyond their little bit of the jigsaw and look at the wider picture. Because that's what we're working towards, bringing in the kingdom of God. You know, not me and my territory. It does worry me that, that a lot of... You know, I'm, I'm really keen that people look at, for their gifts. But only in the right context. And we look for our gifts to see how we can serve God and his people and the people of the world better. Too many people speak about me and my ministry. It's God's mission. 
and we're privileged to be part of it, seeing the wider picture. And, and it's true for, for our leaders in government as well. Pray for them. I mean, you can see what's been happening over this last, you know, as the cuts begin to, to bite, you know, and, and this government has got to do something about it, having inherited a particular situation. And, and, and everybody says, yes, there have got to be cuts. Then the moment the cut hits my particular piece, <laughs> and you see, you know, outraged people on the television. But the wider picture... And in church, it's so important, particularly as, as we, we begin to feel beleaguered in, in being part in, of, a, of a more secular society. Although that 70% figure seems to argue against that, doesn't it? But, but that's, what, that's what we feel. That's certainly what the media tell us, that we're in, a, we're in a hostile society, a bit like you know that temple in the middle of the hostile lands around Jerusalem. Okay, he can see the wider picture. And then what does he do? Well, quite clearly, it tells you. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. He weeps. He weeps for his brothers and sisters whose lives are in danger. He weeps for the honor of God. He weeps for his nation. He weeps for all of the sins and the the rebellion that's got them to this position. He weeps and he weeps and he weeps. What is so deeply on your heart regarding the mission of God that it would cause you to weep? Quite a challenging question, isn't it? What's so deeply on your heart? What do you care about? You know, do you care deeply about the mission of the church? But, you know, as far as we're concerned here, those of you who are, who, who are members here or at St. Luke's, you know, do you care about the mission of this church so deeply that it moves you in your spirit? You know, I think people weep about all sorts of things. You know, uh, in bereavement, in loss, they weep when their nose is put out of joint and something happens in their life that really annoys them. Uh, they will weep, obviously, over a broken relationship or perhaps something going wrong in the family, and those are all right things to, to feel about deeply. But do you weep for the thousands in Lowestoft who need Jesus and don't know him? Do you weep for injustice? Do you care about those things? You know, and I say, what I'm saying to you, I say to myself, his heart is moved. And that's why he is prepared to go and do something about this. His heart is moved. What is your heart moved about? I challenge you. (laughs) And, And I challenge you to pray about it. Because it's the same thing. It's the same thing about keeping the main thing the main thing. If our hearts are for for those who need Jesus, then we begin not to worry about the silly little things that we worry about. It all falls into a proper perspective.
I often talk about the church, um, yes, I talk about the church being for people, often when they first arrive, particularly newly converted people, that it's like a hospital. And all of us from time to time have to nip back into the hospital wing of the church, don't we? Because something happens in our lives uh, and we, we, we get that care. But as we stay in church, so it should become a family, a family of people who love one another and look after each other, and who occasionally bicker, because that happens in families as well. But it should move beyond that, because otherwise it just is inward-looking. You know, it's like small groups, home groups. They're great things, but if they don't stay outward-looking, then they can become inward-looking, and they're just cozy little clubs. And, And then they cease to have their function, because we should move beyond the family to become a mighty army. Extending the kingdom of God. But you see, I think some people go from that point, or even that point, straight to this point. And they treat the church as a supermarket, where they come in, and they get what they want, and then they go, parting with some money on the way. And and that's very much the model of our society now, a consumer society where we say, yeah, I'll have a bit of that, and I'll have a bit of that. People talk about being spiritual. What they mean is they want spiritual experiences, I think. And so it's all things to make them feel better. But the church needs people to commit. This church needs people to commit, to step up to the mark and say, yes, I'll be part of this. I will be a disciple who helps take the gospel to the town, to the parish and to the town. And that's significantly raising the game of the church, but that's what it's for. Good prayer, you know, as we think of Nehemiah weeping over these people, a good prayer is, dear Lord, help me to develop a heart for others. Help me to develop a heart for people. People who are Christians and people who are not Christians. What else does he do? He mourns. I know a bit about this now. (laughs) Bereavement happens, doesn't it? There's nothing you can do about it. Mourning it's a choice. It's funny, in our, in our society, we've rather lost this. And so a lot of people just stay bereaved, feeling sad. Because mourning is going through a process of dealing with loss. And it used to be, you know, people had things they did, like they wore black or, or you know, there, there were set things that society told them to do. And that doesn't happen anymore now because we're, we're meant to all bounce back and be happy all the time. <laughs> Um, bereavement is happens but mourning is a choice I mean, my mum uh, she, she has you know uh, she and dad were married for 65 years that's a long long time to be together and uh, his funeral was a week last Monday and this week she's been on holiday with her friends in Germany for five days now she was planning 
to go with Dad. And, uh, and her friends said, no, you must come. You must come. And she said, yes, I will come. Because I can't just sit around <laughs> feeling sorry for myself. That's self-indulgent. I've got to move on. I will go. I will be sad, she said. So she knew that. I will go and I will be sad, but it's right to go. And I thought, what a good attitude. And, you know, that's making a choice of, of more. That's what I mean by the difference between bereavement and mourning. Now, he mourns for this situation. There are all sorts of bereavements that happen to us. The loss of a job is like a bereavement. Um, a marriage breakup is, is like a bereavement. It's the same stuff happens to us. And you have to make a choice to mourn and, and to move on um, in, in whatever way. And the problem is, of course, that tends to be different for each person. You, you have to sort of work it out. But it seems to me he was mourning here. During this time when he was praying night and day and weeping, he was hatching a plan. And I would think at some point he knew exactly what he needed to do. And he needed to make a journey like my mum. And his journey was going to be back to Jerusalem. And he was the one that was going to step up to the mark and do the job of mobilizing people to rebuild this wall because the critical thing was that the wall was rebuilt so that Jerusalem could be secured and then the temple would be safe. And its people, more important than the temple, its people would be safe. What does God want me to do <laughs> with my life and the immediate future, or you? You know, a plan. Not necessarily mourning, but on the other hand, if there is something that is so deeply etched in your heart that it could move you to tears, then you have to work with God to find out a plan to do something about it. <laughs> because the world needs people who will do something and not just say, oh, how terrible everything is. He mourns. Then he fasts. Now, why does fasting work? I mean, what's the point of fasting? Tell me. What do you think? Focus? Yeah? Yes, so it's, it's putting into effect the deny yourself that Jesus talks about. You know, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. So it's all of those things. Uh, and it does give you clarity, actually, clarity of mind. When you've got over the initial raging hunger, <laughs> you do get a clarity of mind, and it's sort of easier to hear God speak to you. Well, you know, why would people fast these days? Well, people fast, you know, to <laughs> try and lose a bit of weight, or they'll fast perhaps because they're sponsored and they're wanting to raise money for something. But, but, but who amongst us would be prepared to fast for those in our parish who don't know God. <laughs> Challenge, isn't it? Or to fast for injustice in, in, in Africa or whatever. But, you know, I tend to look locally because I, I think that the local church is the hope of the world, as Bill Hybels says. Uh, but if we are the hope of the world, we've got to do something about it. <laughs> Fasting for the lost of Alton Broad. Perhaps we should do it. 
Some of us went to spring harvest and Esther was being studied. Esther, there's a lovely verse in Esther where she is challenged because she is in touch with the king and she needs to do something for her people, a little bit like Nehemiah being in touch with the king and doing something for his people. And there's a verse that says, perhaps you have been put here for such a time as this. (laughs) Nehemiah was placed here for such a time as this. And have you been placed in whatever your church situation is for such a time as this? And then he prays. He prays. At Deanery is our us, <laughs> I heard four speakers, three of whom were brilliant. One was not so, he was all right. Um, uh, and, uh, and he was all right because he sort of talked about what this deanery had done, but it was like he was talking about a management situation. And at the end of it, in the question, someone said, you haven't mentioned prayer. <laughs> um, surely all of this, because it was ma- major changes to a deanery, surely you should have done a lot of praying before this started. And he was really quite sniffy about it. <laughs> he didn't smile at all. He sort of said, I covered that. And I'm thinking, you didn't cover that. <laughs> but I didn't say it. <laughs> Deep prayer. Not the consumer society prayer. Dear Lord, give me this, that, and the other because that will make my life better. This, not prayer to make us feel good. I, I, oh, dear, this is one of my bugbears. I do, <laughs> you go to some prayer events and there's all these things on and it's all very good if it, if it brings you closer to God. That's, that's all right and I'm happy with that. But it's almost like sort of prayer as part of a health spa treatment. <laughs> you know, do this little activity. And that will make you feel better. That's not what prayer's for. (laughs) It's not what prayer's for. I don't think this prayer would have made him feel better at all because he did it day and night, he was crying, and he wasn't eating. (laughs) I think he felt awful. (laughs) But the prayer was from his heart. And you know, I've said it so many times, we've made lots of changes in this church um, over four and a half years, which we feel God has led us in but we haven't done any of them that haven't been underpinned by prayer. Half nights of prayer, um, uh, prayer objectives, prayer, prayer, and more prayer because we need to ask God to listen to us and we need to listen to God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, Psalm 133. And what we have here, and oh dear, is that the time? But what we, <laughs> I have to do this quickly. What we have here is a great pattern for prayer. And if you, want, if you want a good pattern for prayer about the thing that is on your heart, then I'd advise you to look at Nehemiah, uh, verses um, 5 through to the end, because this is Nehemiah's prayer, and it's a really good model of a prayer. Let me go through it very, very quickly. Okay, so pattern for prayer. To begin with, he, he, in a sense, reminds himself of who God is. Um, I'm not going to read all these verses out because I'm running out of time. So they're just there for you to look at. Um, Nehemiah's prayer. This is verse 5, if you prefer to follow from your Bible. Why do we do that? Why do we praise God? Well, we, we do that just to realize the pecking order <laughs> and who it is we're praying to. 
you, you see another thing that's happened in our current society, and I'm guilty of doing it as well. We, 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 we over-egg the loving father bit. <laughs> and, and we underplay the all-powerful, awesome God who could destroy us just like that if he wished to. And that is who God is. Whether we like it or not, whether it fits with our theological view of this great cuddly giant in the sky, who, when we do something appalling, just says, oh, well, never mind. That's not who God is. And what Nehemiah does, and of course, this is just a stylized prayer that summarizes the days and nights that he has spent in prayer, reminding himself of just how great God is and who God is. And and that it is by the grace of God that we have this fantastic privilege of prayer and a relationship with him. But it is by the grace of God. And there's no indication that he is going to remove it, but if he wanted to, he could. Because God is God. And sometimes we just need to recognize that and remember it. And so that is the first part of his prayer. Now, what, what are your prayers like? I know what mine are sometimes. Oh, Lord, this has happened, and can you do this for me, please? <laughs> oh, Lord, there's that person that's really irritating. Can you do that thing, please? <laughs> oh, and by the way, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and amen. Now, that's probably a bit of a parody, but, but it's not too far off, is it, sometimes? Don't see that here. The recognition of who God is. And then, in verse 6, he sort of asks for God's attention. This is very curious. You know, let your ear be attentive. Now you think, is that a bit of a cheek? And am I now saying the opposite of what I've just said? Is this too casual? Well, actually, I, I don't think it is. You know, asking for the ear of God. I don't know how it works that an all-powerful God can hear every prayer that's said all at the same time. Uh, I mean, any of you seen the film Bruce Almighty? <laughs> uh, where Bruce becomes God and he arranges for all the prayers to come in via email. <laughs> and he's just got these millions of emails coming in and he's trying to answer them all. And in the end, he just gives up and says, say yes to all. <laughs> and as a result, the whole world becomes chaotic because uh, if we all got our own way on what we prayed for, goodness knows what would happen because we pray for quite selfish things sometimes. He asks for God's attention. This is important to him. And he is realizing how great God is. So please, Lord, would you listen to this thing? And then there's confession. There's no scapegoating. He says, I know that we are in this exile thing because the country rebelled against you. He puts his hands up and says, you know, we are wrong. Mea culpa, the Latin phrase, I am guilty. He is honest before God. And that's something that we need to be as well. And you say, well, why do we need to be honest? God knows what we're like. Well, yes, God does know what we're like, but God also needs to know (laughs) that we know... (laughs) what we are like. And there's something about that unfolding and making ourselves vulnerable and honest before God and accepting where we are to blame. 
not, not accepting, you know, the, some people, you know, they're always saying they're guilty of this, that, and the other. And I think they do it to deflect, actually, um, reality. Because uh, it's just easier to say you're sorry for everything. <laughs> uh, I don't mean that. I mean this honest acceptance of where something, you are part of something that is wrong, then you admit it. And that is the God gift, the God-given gift of repentance. And then he prays the Bible promises. Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses. And, and the first part of the instruction is why they are in exile. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. God said this would happen. They were unfaithful, so it did happen. And then there's this if and then, which you often get in the promises of Scripture. Now, to pray the promises of Scripture is good ground. I've been given promises for here. I've shared some of them. Uh, no time to go over it tonight, but, you know, in Haggai, uh, about, you know, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And, 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 and these are promises that, that I then need to pray back to God, and we need to pray back to God, in a sense, to remind ourselves, but also say to God, we're reminding you, we have this promise. And then you say, but this is one person. One person. How can one person pray for a whole nation? Well, you look in the Bible and see the effect of one person called for such a time as this who acts. God listens. Wasn't it one person that won your salvation? <laughs> you know, the biggest thing that has been done in the history of the world? One person. God will listen. It's what I was saying about developing a heart for people. I, I'm always challenged by this part of the ordinal. Um, the, uh, I mentioned the ordinal, didn't I? Yes, I did, yes, being formed in Scripture. Well, this is another part of it in the priesting service. Have always printed on your remembrance how great a treasure is committed to your charge, for they are the sheep of Christ, which he bought with his death, and for whom he shed his blood. Those words when I read them, are some of the reason I became a minister in the Anglican Church, because they moved me. And sometimes I move away and I forget that. I forget that everybody, everybody here, you are treasure. <laughs> Developing a heart for people. And, and if, we are, if we have that big enough heart, then the one prayer can have a huge effect, even if the others aren't praying. And then finally, finally, comes the request. Oh no, that's, yeah, that's about the people. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. So again, he's saying to God, keep listening. <laughs> he says that at the beginning, and he says it at the end. Give your servant success today, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. That's the king. Because he has to ask the king to get permission to leave and to take people with him to go and rebuild the wall. Interesting prayer, isn't it? The intercession bit, the asking bit, is just a little bit right at the end. <laughs> and, and, he is willing to be the answer his own prayer. I'll go. Give me success as I come to the king.
Now remember, cupbearer, comfortable position. He could have done nothing. But he steps up to the mark, called for such a time as this. What is on your heart? What have you sort of committed to? What is God stirring you in your spirit about? Don't ignore it. Because we need people. We need leaders. In this church, we need disciples. People who are prepared to do this stuff as we seek to bring the kingdom of God in in the area in which we are placed, as we seek to not be inward-looking in the temple, but, but, but looking to the wider picture. Nehemiah, as we go on, you'll see, is all about the ability to mobilize people to a task. What will you do? Perhaps you don't know at the moment. Perhaps you do know. Perhaps you're already doing it. Or perhaps there's just the stirrings of something. Briefly, we'll pray into that now as we finish. Would you please stand? And could we have the, uh, uh, the band, please? We have that last song in a moment. I'll need the PowerPoint. So... Let's stand in the presence of that God that we've reminded ourselves about. That all-powerful God. And Heavenly Father, with Nehemiah, we recognize that you are all-powerful. That you are the great God. That you are beyond our understanding. But we thank you at this side of the cross, we know we can have a relationship with you through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also know that you have called us to a mission. And we ask that you would send your Spirit and move our hearts, Lord. Move each heart here giving us a heart for people and giving us a heart for people who don't know you and beginning to give us a plan of what you have for us, the particular thing that you want us to do. Come Holy Spirit and speak to our hearts. And Lord, there are people here who do have a heart for a particular thing and I pray that you would be increasing the anointing upon that particular area of ministry and if that's you I'd ask you in a moment to go and get somebody to pray with you and to pray into that gift it may be that you want to pray that prayer about developing a heart for people and if that's you then make sure you get someone to pray with you 
an area of ministry. It's already existing, but it needs more of God's anointing and power and more direction. And you're needing particular help with that. So get prayer in a moment. People have already been praying this evening. As the band play, uh, just quietly, let's listen to some of those pictures and uh, 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 words. And again, if these are for you, then you must get prayer. As we listened, we saw a picture of the church. Right close. Sorry. I saw a picture of the church with a moat around it and felt it was the river of God, full of healing and miracles, preparing us for what is to come here at St. Mark's and St. Luke's. And then we saw, someone saw a large boulder, a heavy weight, a burden someone is carrying. They're trying to move it on their own. And then the words, come to me, all who are weary. And the three keys, come to God, give your burden to God, and trust him to deal with it. A person with heavy weights, and people were removing them. And then when all the weight was removed, she danced in a pool of light with the wind swirling leaves around her. Someone heard all the background noise as we listened of the traffic, but felt that God was saying she was in a really peaceful place. And then someone had a verse from Scripture, 1 Corinthians 1.10, and the words, Burdens released, and I will not let you go. And then somebody else had a pain in the left thigh, And then someone had a picture of an eye looking over people. God overseeing all that is going on here and now. And finally, there was a picture of lovely, lush, green grass, like a jungle. It was full of life, but underneath was poison. But it was reminding us to put on our spiritual armor of God. So come, Holy Spirit. Move in the hearts of your people. Those, uh, those pictures and words that have been shared, if that's for people here, which we think it is, Lord, send your anointing on that person now, for each picture, for each word, that they may know that you are speaking to them. And if that is you, you must go and get prayer. So can I encourage now the the prayer ministry team to go to the the back of the church and anybody that's wanting prayer about any of the things that have been shared and the anointing for new ministries and that whole business of a heart for people, uh, ministry already in existence that is needing new anointing or new direction, just please go for prayer now. We're going to sing again uh, as we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and then the time is for you to use as you wish. If you need to go after this, then do. But if you need to sit quietly or you need to pray or you need to get prayer, then use the opportunity. The Spirit of the Lord.
Spirit of the Lord. people whole and I know this is the hour of his favor and his power and his spirit is upon me now now please make your way for prayer ministry if uh, that is what you know you need to be doing right now Uh, Because I think there is a lot going on in people's hearts. So use that opportunity now, please. Make your way down to the back. Or just sit in one of the seats nearer the back, if you prefer that, the pews nearer the back, and someone will come to you. so that any that need to go can go. Uh, But then we carry on praying for as long as people need prayer. So receive God's blessing, the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Rest upon you and remain with you always. Amen.